Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man? Do you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and do the same yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of, of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his according according to his deeds. This is kind of like Nathan. You are the man. You have no excuse. You say, well, I'm not like that. I don't know what they're doing. That's really bad. I wouldn't be like that. He says, well, your knowing they're wrong doesn't change the fact that you're doing the very same thing they're doing. You know, it's like somebody arguing that is wrong to argue. Or somebody being highly critical of those who are highly critical. You know, it's like you kind of defeat yourself. He says, you are practicing the same things you're condemning in other people. Have you not noticed doing that? Ah, there are times when, ah, I've been so upset with somebody else. And then I, finally my conscience was touched and I realized, I am doing the very same thing they're doing. You know, I've got the very wrong attitude they have. And, and Paul's point is, just because you look down on them doesn't make you right. So he says, we know that the judgment of God literally is according to truth against those who practice such things. God judges according to truth, according to the reality, according to the facts. God is an equal opportunity judge. He doesn't allow personal feelings or favoritism in or in. He judges according to the truth. He says, do you not, do you think that when you pass judgment on those who practice these things and you do it, that you can escape the judgment of God? You know, you think you're a special case when it comes to judgment? Because you call on other people to reform that you'll be okay? He says, don't you, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? There are so many people who misunderstand God's goodness and it becomes a, a source of security that it shouldn't be, a false sense of security. False source of security. That, that, well, God's so good and generous, kind, I'll be fine. He says, no, God's goodness is trying to lead you to repentance. Don't, don't presume upon it. He says, but what you're doing because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you're treasuring up wrath. That is not something you would normally amass as a great investment. But that's what he's saying. You're accruing a whole treasure of God's divine wrath. As if that would be something you'd want to inherit. He says, who will render to each person according to his deeds. God judges based upon what we've done. Based on what we've done, are we a sinner or are we righteous? Sinner. Do you believe that? You know why we don't sometimes? Is that, well, I've done more good than I've done bad. You ever start thinking like that? Go back to me killing somebody. I've helped more little old ladies to cross the street than I have killed people. 
You know, I've, 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 je- I've donated to more righteous causes than I've killed people. Listen, there's a whole lot more people I haven't killed than what I have. <laughs> you know? I mean, is any of that really going to cut it? We, miss, we, we get really confused when we start saying, I really, I mean, I know I, I sinned, I've I, I messed up something. But really, I, I'm pretty good. I, I really think overall the judgment should be, I'm, I'm innocent. Well, there may be a murderer who thinks that, but none of the rest of us think that. I should say this somewhere, I'll just say this here. So, one of our problems is failing to see our sins as bad. I, I spent a lot of time in prison back in the uh, late uh, 80s. I was a visitor, not a resident. But uh, I was in a prison for sex crimes, primarily. I spent a lot of time there, studying and working with the guys there. So I'm like, we're converted. And, uh, but the interesting thing, the rapists and murderers in there really looked down on the child molesters. Well, I think we can understand looking down on child molesters. But somebody who forcibly rapes or murders, who are they to look down on the child molesters? Here's the thing. If I commit the sin, it doesn't seem so bad to me. Whatever sin I'm committing, I have a way of kind of rationalizing it in my mind. But I sure don't approve of those guys doing those things. That's the way that usually goes. What if you were God? You're totally pure and holy, and you've never done anything wrong. Think about how that would change your perception of sin. So, he's saying, God's wrath is poured out against all unrighteousness and ungodliness, and furthermore, it's poured out on you who judge your neighbor as being unrighteous. You who think you're good. God's going to judge you just like he judges everybody else based upon your record. And based upon your record, you're a sinner guilty just like everybody else. Thoughts and comments? Yeah, Steve. I think it's interesting that the kindness of God moves you to repentance. But the majority of the world feels like the kindness of God means approval of God. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. So we ought to use the kindness to bring us to repentance, not as an excuse for sin. Yeah, good point. Peterson? Just a question. Uh, what makes us any different from the people of chapter, chapter 2 in the previous section? Those in the previous section, uh, verses 28 to I don't think there is a difference. I think there's just people who think they are different. So I think 18 to 32 of chapter 1 is everybody. But there are some groups of people who think, but this doesn't apply to me, so he's zeroing it on them to convict them specially because they think they're an exception. But I think everybody's encompassed in the end of chapter one. I thought. I think that first John chapter one in verse eight that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that's talking Yeah. Yeah, it's always funny. Deceives himself, probably not anybody else. The rest of us, the rest of people know we're sinners. We're only pulling the wool of our own eyes if we deny that. Other thoughts? Yeah. Alright, um, how about uh, 7 through 11 and then we'll take a break. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance 
in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Fine. Now here he describes two different classes of people. There are those who seek to who do goods. What do they what do they receive? Those who do good? Eternal life. Then there are those who do not obey the truth. And what do they receive? Wrath, the wrath of God. Wrath and indignation, tribulation and distress. Well, that makes sense. God is a God who is just. So those who do right, he blesses. Those who do evil, he punishes. Now, who is in the class of those who do good? Anybody? What do you think? True disciples, those are not false communities. But who do we know that does good? Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse uh, 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. I think in this context, it's theoretical. No one does good. God theoretically gives eternal life to the one who does. But the truth is we're all sinners. There's no partiality with God. God is an equal opportunity savior and an equal opportunity judge. In this passage we're looking at the judgment. We're saying that all men are guilty before God and only those who submit to the gospel God will save. But here it's the need for the gospel because all men are sinners. God is going to give eternal life to the righteous and punishment to the wicked. The problem is all of us are wicked. Now, I understand that many of us have been saved by Christ. That's what he's coming to. But so far, he's trying to show the universal need for that. Everyone is a sinner. Therefore, everyone receives judgment and wrath without the gospel. Thoughts and comments? Yes. I think you just point to our base nature that if if we are without God, that's how we are. Yeah. Take away God, that's how we are. That's just the reality of it. It's the reality of every person who's not been saved by Christ. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a break for about 15 minutes. Just relax and more people can come in. I know several people are behind me are married. Uh, the center and everybody needs the gospel. And that's true even of the people who might take more exceptions to that, like the man who's in the law. Oh, they are. Well, yeah, you're a sinner too. And he zeroes in on kind of like we'll all be judged by the law we have, whatever law that is. Or maybe I should say we'll all be condemned by the law we have, whatever law that is. So would somebody read 12 and 16? For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God but the doers of the law will be justified. But when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, 
in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So, you're going to be judged and condemned by whatever law it is you have. All who sin without the law will perish without the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Having the law doesn't exempt you. Not having the law doesn't somehow exonerate you. Everybody's going to be judged by whatever law they sin under. Uh, because it's not the doers of the it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers that are justified. That's what he says in verse 13. And nobody's been a doer. Some people have the law. And they may hear the law, but because nobody's done it. And we may say, well, yeah, but I've done a lot of it. Remember our uh, killing somebody illustration. Yeah, you can keep a lot of laws. But James says in James 2, if you're a murderer, but you haven't cheated on your wife, it really doesn't change anything. You're still a murderer. <laughs> you know, so everybody is judged and condemned by what law they have. Now, you would think the Gentiles might be sort of a different situation. Because when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively think the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves. The fact is, every person has some sense of law, some sense of ought and obligation. Um, there is some instinctive awareness, perhaps, and certainly some sense of a code of conduct that everybody has. And the Gentiles show that because sometimes they do what the law says. And they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. They have a conscience. Even, even Gentiles, even people who don't have the law have a conscience. They have a sense of doing wrong, a sense of guilt. And they condemn other people for doing what they see as wrong. So everybody has a law that they're condemned by. That's his point. It's not that we're justified by law, it's that we're condemned by that. So, think about it this way. If you have the law of Moses, you're condemned because you don't keep the law of Moses perfectly. But if you don't have the law of Moses, if you're a Gentile and you have whatever moral code you live by, who has ever kept their own moral code completely? In fact, is nobody has. Whatever code that may be, you're in some tribe and you've got whatever whatever laws that tribe has, nobody's ever kept their laws, even the ones they have come up with, perfect. They're all sinners, even by their own sense of a code of conduct, to, to not even speak of the law of God. So everybody's a sinner. Uh, and God will judge of the secrets of men through Jesus Christ, according to my gospel in verse 16. We will all ultimately be judged by the gospel, but the fact is, even if we were judged by whatever law or norm or code of conduct we accept, we're sinners by that too, because we've not kept it. Thoughts and comments? So, that brings us to really zeroing in on the Jews. If there's ever a group that thought they were exempt, from this universal wrath of God, it would have been the Jews. And there were some reasons why the Jews thought that. We'll look at them. So, 17 to 24. <coughs> Indeed, you are called Jew. You rest on the law and make your boast in God. 
Newton's will approve of things that are excellent, even struck it out of the law. You're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore, you teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, you steal. You who say, do not commit adultery, you commit adultery. You are poor idols, you rob temples. You who make your boast in the law, you dishonor God through breaking the law. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So, the law, the Jews had the law. And from their perspective, having the law meant they were in a special category. They had the law. Well, his point is, okay, so, you know, having the law, they felt like meant they could rely on the law, boast in God, know his will, approve what's essential, and be instructed out of the law. They were confident that they were a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, corrector of the foolish, teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. There's nothing like knowing the law to make a person feel feel prideful, feel out of arrogant. Well, I know the law. I can tell you what you're doing wrong. I know the law. And that's how the Jews felt. But those privileges did not exempt them from God's judgment. Didn't make them suddenly not guilty before God. And, and, and he says, because here's the thing. You have the law, you know the law. But you're guilty. He said, look, you know, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? So like, you preach that one shouldn't steal, but you steal. Now, does it really help you that you preach that you shouldn't steal if you steal? Or, he says, you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who are more idols, do you rob temples? They were supposed to burn the stuff, the idols and so forth in the temples, but they were robbing them and enjoying them for themselves. So, I mean, when you don't practice what you preach, what does that make you? It makes you a hypocrite. And, and really, it ends up dishonoring God more. He says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You know, it's hard to believe there's any good in your teaching if your teaching hasn't done you any good. If it hasn't changed you, it hasn't helped you. What, what God is it that, that, that you must be serving that lets you be so corrupt and wicked and evil as you are? They become the instruments to provoke the Gentiles to blasphemy. They sully God's reputation. It, we really have to think about that some and, 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 and humble ourselves because we can end up hurting the Lord's reputation among the Gentiles because of our misbehavior. How many unreligious people use so-called Christians as their reason for not serving the Lord? I wouldn't want to be hypocrites like all the Christians I know are. You know, look at their attitude. And, and, and so it provokes the Gentiles to blasphemy. So it, he's telling Jews, you're not an exception because you have the law. Because you're having the law hasn't made you live the law. Thoughts? Amen. 
For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letters. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, there was the other big thing for the Jews. They had circumcision. They were circumcised. You know, that just seemed to be like the rabbit's foot that would enable them to go to heaven, and they were right with God because they were circumcised. Paul's point is circumcision doesn't do you one bit of good if you're not keeping the law. If you're not doing what God says, what, what difference does it make if you're circumcised? That, that's what he's saying. If you were a doer of the law, then circumcision would be a nice thing. But you're a transgressor. It's like they thought of circumcision as magic. You know, like some Christians sometimes think of baptism. Well, I've been baptized. I may be cheating on my wife and looking at garbage on the internet and doing this, doing that, but I haven't baptized. Well, what good did your baptism do you if you didn't repent and if you're not living for the Lord? Or sometimes people think of the envelope of the Lord's Supper that way. Well, I got my Lord's Supper in every Sunday. Well, great, but did you live for the Lord? Did you live like He wants you to? So you see how the Jews were in that. In fact, Paul says what God really wants is inward circumcision. He wants you to cut the sin out of your heart more than he wants you to cut the, 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 the skin off of your body. That God, God really wants us to circumcise our heart and give ourselves to the Lord. That's the circumcision that matters. The circumcision by the Spirit, not by the letter. Uh, the circumcision that, that the Holy Spirit brought in the Gospel, which was removing the sin from our heart and our life. That's the circumcision that matters. So what do you see? Everybody's lost. Chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. Not me, I don't approve of them. You are a Jew because you do the things that are wrong. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 16. Not me, I'm a Jew. I've got the law of circumcision. The law didn't do anything good. You're not living it. And circumcision won't help you if you don't do what, what's right. So everybody's a sinner. Even in chapter 2, the categories of people who might have thought they were an exception. He's, he's really trying to teach us that we need the gospel. He, you know, it's kind of like going to the doctor. You know, it's a bummer when the doctor tells you you've got some terrible disease. But you really need to know so you can start getting the treatment and doing whatever you need to do for it. You know, it's kind of dumb not to want to go to the doctor and find out what you got, because the leg may be fatal. If you find out, it still may stink, but you're better off knowing and, and correcting it. We need to know what the gospel says. And, and this, uh, and we need to see how, how much in need we are. We need to see God's wrath is upon us. So we'll reach out for the gospel. Thoughts and comments? Yes? Looking through this, I can't help but be reminded of Abraham in Genesis 17, where God gives a command to be circumcised, and Abraham follows through with that physically, but then also proves that it made an inward change, like in Genesis 22. It changed him outside and inside. That's the goal. And even the Old Testament, Deuteronomy talks about the circumcision of the heart. We miss it when we think that the goal of the Old Testament was only physical. 
God intended in the Old Testament for people to serve him with their heart and not just in a mechanical, physical way. Other thoughts? Okay, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Here's the Jews' answer to you. 